How many of you know the name of your great-grandfather, your great-grandpa? Okay, nice. How many of you know the name of your great-great-grandpa? Oh, so, so raise those high. There's getting fewer and fewer. All right, so we got, how many know the name of their great-great-great-grandpa? Oh, we got Teresa over here. How many, how far, are you the last one? How far back can you go? Is that the last one? You know too, Beverly? It's the same. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Nice. So that's as far back you go. Great, great, great. And so nobody knows they're a great, 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 great in here. Okay. Yeah, family trees for us in the United States, in our nation, are typically not that important as far as like making uh, a impact on your life. None of you go into a job or go to some social gathering and say, hello, my name is Tim, son of Archie, son of Jack. No one goes in introducing themselves uh, by the name of their parent or their grandparent. It's just something that's fallen away in our, in our culture. We don't need it. As a matter of fact, we've gone the opposite way and we make the point that your family doesn't define you. That's, that's a very American idea of looking at things. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your family heritage is. You can make it here. You can, um, you can have this American dream. So our culture has gone, in some sense, to the opposite end of emphasizing family trees. Really, the only reason we know about our family tree a lot of times is just because we're curious. We go on um, Ancestry.com and try to find uh, records of something just, just for curiosity's sake. But in Jesus's time and in a lot of other cultures in the world, a family tree is a big deal. And for Jewish culture, the family tree was the biggest deal. Um, many of many families in the Jewish culture would know um, their their pedigree for um, generations and generations and generations. Today, we're going to look at a family tree. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus, his pedigree. And opposite of what our culture, our family trees don't really make a bearing on who we are. In Jesus's time, and this genealogy says something about who Jesus is. It teaches us about who Jesus is and who God is. So this morning, as we read through this, we're going to see what does Jesus's pedigree have to say about him. So if you're there in the book of Matthew chapter one, we're going to have some fun. I'm going to read you a bunch of crazy names and you'll probably laugh when I don't read them right. So we're going to start in uh, Matthew chapter one, verse one. And it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, uh, and his brothers, 
at the time of deportation in Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliak. Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathon, Mathon the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon. 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. What a fun ride that was. That's, uh, you read that for your devotional in the morning, man, the Lord's really going to speak to you, right? That's uh, some moving, some gripping text. But I read through all of that just to show the length and, and the importance of this text. So the Gospels were produced, this is Matthew is a gospel. Gospels were produced at a time when there were no word processors. There were no typing machines. There was not even a printing press. For Matthew to go through the painstaking effort to produce a document to give to the church every single um, dotting of an I and crossing of a T mattered. There was no wasted space. It's not like he could just delete and start over. It's not like he could just produce an endless amount of of, of text. He chose specifically what he put in here for a purpose. Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy, um, not just for fun, but for a purpose. And I think this genealogy says something to us. It says something to us. Number one, I think it says that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. There's a popular worship song right now goes like this. It says, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. Um, it's a great song. It's called Waymaker. It's a beautiful song. But it's interesting that the phrase uh, Promise Keeper is thrown in there. Why is that something that we should even point out? Why is that like a surprising thing that somebody would say something and then follow through with it? I think it's because human beings don't really do that very good all the time. We are not always promise keepers. We're most of the time promise breakers. We make promises and the follow through on those is not our forte. We typically find some way to not follow through with our promise. Um, we've all had promises made to us that have been broken. We've made promises that we break often to our children saying, hey, we'll do that later. I promise. Well, I promise we'll do that later. And we often don't do it. But when God gives us this Genealogy, I think it points us to the promise. And in, these in that very first line, we see a bunch of promises that God had made right there. It says the book of, gene of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word Christ points us back to a promise. One of the oldest promises in the Bible. The word Christ is the Greek word for anointed one or promised one. In the Old Testament or in Hebrew, we would call that the Mashiach or the Messiah. Right, that, Those two words are the same thing. The Messiah, the Christ, just means the promised one. And if you go all the way back to the very earliest portions of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God, after humans had sinned and fallen, 
made a promise to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. And the, he said this to the serpent. He made a promise to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or war between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise you shall bruise he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars read that and understand that they call that the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel, in that this, this serpent who had deceived Eve and brought sin into the world had caused Adam and Eve to rebel against their maker. God made a promise right there to crush that serpent through a descendant of Eve, through one of her offspring, the serpent would be crushed. This first promise to, to make all things right, right after Humans had made everything wrong. God promised to make everything right. And the rest of the Old Testament is consumed with this idea of this promised one coming. Um, through, through the law, through the prophets, through the poetry, it's always focusing on this one that's supposed to come, this Messiah, this promised one. The next phrase that we see in that first verse, actually not the next phrase, the second to next phrase, we're going to skip David for a moment and go to Abraham Jesus is called the son of Abraham. And we know Abraham, we know that song that we, um, that we often sing in children's church. If you played football at Commerce, we sing that before every football game. Uh, we know Father Abraham, but why do we call it Father Abraham? Because Abraham was promised that he would be the father of a great nation, a nation that would have so many people and it would outnumber the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. But when God made that promise, he said this to Abraham. He said, because you have done all, Sorry, I'm still reading the curse to the serpent. Uh, he said this to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families on earth shall be blessed. So Abraham was promised... This family was chosen by God to carry this promise. He said, you're going to be a great nation and every family on earth is going to be blessed by you. And as Matthew introduces Jesus, the Christ, the promised one, Jesus, the son of Abraham, that one who's going to come to bless all nations, the people of Israel would read that and think, oh, that's what he means by the son of Abraham. And then finally, let's look at the son of David. David was the greatest king in the eyes of the Israelites. And there's no debate about it. We can all debate about the greatest of something. Um, I don't know if the, those, those of you who maybe aren't on social media or um, aren't of this new Gen Z generation, we, we use the term GOAT to refer to the greatest of all time. G-O-A-D. Uh, G-O-A-T. No? G-O-A-T. Yeah, greatest of all time. Um, who's the greatest of all time? We argue about who the greatest basketball player is, right? My generation says it's Michael Jordan. The next generation says it's LeBron James. We might debate about who the greatest president was. Was it George Washington or was it Abraham Lincoln? Who's the greatest singer of all time? Was it Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, or somebody else? And interestingly enough, all these greatest of all times tend to change from generation to generation, right? One generation says, yeah, that guy was great at that, but have you seen this dude? Or that lady was really good, but this lady far surpasses. Interestingly enough, though, within the Israelite um, 
nation, that never changed. David was always the goat. David was always the greatest king of all time. They considered him the, the, the best, and every king after him was supposed to live up to David. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he's referred to as the son of David. That's because a promise was made to David as well. A promise was made in the garden, a promise was made to Abraham, and a promise was made to David. In 2 Samuel 7, it says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Somebody from David's line would be king forever. Now, David's son Solomon, who's mentioned in this genealogy, died. So who is that son of David that's going to reign forever? It is Christ. It is Christ. And interestingly enough, by the end of this, um, this section here, notice that in verse 17, it makes the point to say from this generation to this generation, 14 generations. From this time to this time, 14 generations. And then from this time to this time, 14 generations. Three sets of 14 now, for us, we don't really get into numbers that much, but for the Jewish people, they would have um, the importance of numbers because they um, numbers and letters were the same for them. So the number 14 correlates to David. David, the, the, the three letters that would make up David in the Hebrew alphabet would add up numerically to uh, 14. So again, Matthew is doing this, this interesting, um, poetic, um, systematic way of presenting to you Jesus as the king, the king of David, the promised one that was supposed to come from David. And as we think about that, as we're faced with Jesus as the Christ, the promised one, he's the son of Abraham that's going to bless all nations. And he is the king from the line of David uh, that would rule forever. The question for us is this, is this King Jesus the king of our hearts? This morning, as we think about Christmas and this time to come, it's a good time for us to think, is Jesus ruling in my heart today? Is he sitting on the throne of my heart? Or am I sitting in the driver's seat with my hands on the wheel, deciding what to do, thinking that I know better than him? Maybe this Christmas, think about this king that's presented to us in this passage as being the one who rules everything and who will rule eternity. Are you letting him rule your heart now? That's a good thing to let Jesus take the wheel, as Carrie Underwood says. Uh, letting him be the one who guides our life and guides the direction of our life. We should let him be the king. Because this king who came as a baby the first time and rolled quietly into town on a donkey is not going to come back in a humble way next time. He's going to come back as a ruling king to judge uh, the living and the dead. And when that happens, are we going to be prepared? Because remember, God keeps his promises. That's what this passage tells us. Um, throughout all these generations, God had made these three big promises and he kept them in bringing Jesus. And another big promise that he makes to us, as we sit here today, we still have a promise yet to be fulfilled that he would return. Christ said that he would come back for his people. So this morning, as you sit and you wait, are you anticipating the return of Christ and are you ready for that? Because he keeps his promises no matter how long it feels like he's not going to keep those. We're talking about thousands of years that span from Jesus to David to Abraham all the way back to Adam in the garden. Thousands of years. We've been waiting about 2,000 years for Christ's return. But trust me, those 2,000 years 
are but a blink of an eye for the Lord. Um, and he is not late. He's going to come right when he means to. And he's made that promise that he will return. If he came the first time, he will surely come the second time because he keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And second thing that we learn from this passage is that God uses unusable people. God uses unusable people. When we look through this family tree, it's honestly a little messed up. The people that are listed here are not necessarily, not necessarily the cream of the crop. They wouldn't be um, who we would classify as a holy saint, if you will. If you look at some of these people, you start off just with Abraham. Abraham tried to give his wife away to foreigners twice. He lied about who she was, uh, saying that she was just his sister rather than his wife. Jacob, he was a deceiver. He lied to steal his brother's birthright. David was an adulterous murderer who stole his neighbor's wife and then sent his neighbor to die in the front lines of war. This family tree is full of sinners that God chose to use. This family tree is full of outcasts, people who would not have been the in crowd in society. If you look at Tamar, there in verse 3, she was guilty of incest. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite, and those people were known for their sexual immorality. Then it mentions the wife of Uriah. It doesn't say Bathsheba by name, but we know who it is. She was either guilty of adultery with David or she was the victim of sexual abuse, one or the other. But either way, she would probably be, probably be considered an outcast no matter what. And most of those women that were mentioned there were all foreigners as well. They were not people of Israel. They were Gentile people. And all of these things should, from a human standard, from our perspective, disqualify somebody from being used by God or at least throw God's plan off, right, from our perspective. But, man, this family tree tells us that, one, God uses unusable people and that, two, he can accomplish his task no matter what. God can do anything despite man's evil. As we look through that, that family tree, there's a lot of evil. A lot of decisions were made by men, even by women, who were full of sin and deceit in their heart. Yet, God was able to bring about the most holy person, his chosen one, through that family line. So despite how difficult or how evil we see this world, because it's really easy to watch the news for just a few minutes or check the headlines on the Internet or Facebook and think, man, this world is evil. How can God do anything good in this world? Well, you don't need to read the Gospels any farther than Matthew chapter one to see God can do great things through a bunch of messed up people. God brought about the savior of the world through this family tree. Despite their evil, God's will was accomplished. And that's a beautiful picture of these two things that we find in the Bible. The responsibility of man and God's sovereignty over human history. Men, people, make choices and decisions and we act and we're responsible for those actions. Yet, God is so powerful, so sovereign, that he can bring about his exact intention despite all of our failures and our sinfulness. That's how powerful our God is. And we see those two things married here in this passage. The sinfulness of man, yet the sovereignty of God in one passage. 
But I think it also just reminds us that there's nothing that we can do in our lives that can disqualify us from being used by the Lord. As we said, Abraham, David, all of these great men of the Bible, these these women who would have been considered outcasts like Rahab, who's a, a foreigner and a prostitute. These things did not disqualify these people from being used by God. Once they turned their heart to the Lord, they could be used by God to do great things. So you might look at your family tree or maybe just your your history, your record and think, yeah, this record disqualifies me. I cannot be used by the Lord. I'm I'm damaged goods, whatever that might be. But let this promise that God made through this family tree remind you that no one's disqualified from being used by the Lord. God used all of these messed up people in this family tree to bring about the salvation of the world. Surely he can use you to do a mighty work in your home, in your community, in your job, your workplace, your school, whoever that, wherever that might be. God can use you a broken, messed up person to do mighty things. Because when you trust in Christ, you're not that broken, messed up person anymore. He's putting you together and he's remaking you into the image of his son that you might be used as a mighty vessel for him. Nobody is disqualified from being used by the Lord. And so we see God keeps his promises God uses unusable people. And finally, God accomplishes impossible plans. As we read through this family tree, I want you to be reminded of the curse that Eve was given. What curse was Eve given? That she would have difficulty in childbearing. And we notice every one of these people was successfully able to bear a child. Every time that, that someone is able to bear a child, that's a miracle. That's a miraculous thing because we were cursed. Our, our race of human, human race was cursed with the difficulty to bear children. I think that means pain in childbirth, like the actual delivery. But I also, also think that means barrenness because a lot of women throughout this family tree, and we see Elizabeth and Luke and, and, and Sarah, Abraham's wife, having difficulty in childbearing. But despite that curse, God was able to overcome and bring about Jesus even though that curse was on the world. And even in, in addition to God overcoming barrenness in this family tree, we see him overcoming exile. The Israelites were unfaithful. And they were taken up out of Israel and sent to Babylon, a foreign nation. Um, their people were just taken and shipped off. And even in the midst of being shipped off halfway across the world to a foreign nation, God preserved this line. God protected These people who would pass down and down and down all the way to Jesus. God preserved that line. So in the midst of what we would see as impossible circumstances, impossible circumstances of being exiled, God was able to bring about his will for the world. If God can orchestrate the salvation of the world through crazy circumstances, surely he can bring about goodness in your life. Can't he? Doesn't this passage teach you that despite, like we've said, the sinfulness of man or the craziness of this world, the wild circumstances that we're put into, God can bring about order and beauty and goodness in your life for his glory. That's his desire for your good and his glory. The book, the book of Romans chapter eight says that he works all things for the good of those who love him. 
He works all things for the good of those who love him. So when you're going through the difficult circumstances of life, whatever that might be, I don't even need to start naming difficult circumstances. They're already on your mind. I know the difficulties that you have. Despite those things, God can use those things to bring about good in your life and glory for him in this world. And this family tree of Jesus is the perfect example of that. The perfect example of the fact that God keeps his promises, God uses unusable people, and he accomplishes impossible plans. So if God was faithful to send Jesus for the first time, he's faithful to send him the second time. Are you ready for that return? If God can use the unlikeliest candidate to accomplish his purpose, he can use you to further his kingdom. Are you willing? And if God can rearrange history to bring about the birth of the Savior, he can rearrange your life to bring about good and glory. Are you trusting him this morning? As we sit here today, our hearts are probably in a lot of different places. Uh, Maybe this week was a great week. Maybe this week was a rough week. Maybe this week was hard. Um, Maybe it was awesome. Maybe it was the best week you had this year. I don't know. Um, But wherever your hearts, wherever you find your heart right now in this moment, I would ask, is your heart ready, is your heart willing, and is your heart trusting in this Jesus? Here in a moment, we're just going to sing a song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And this is an opportunity to just kind of listen to this song, go through the life of Jesus, even mentions the incarnation in it. So as we go through this song, just let this song um, bring about thoughts of trusting in Him and analyze your heart. How would you respond to Christ this morning after hearing His word preached? How would your heart respond to Him? Let's pray.